Got uh, double duty this morning, so get wet up there, dry off, come down here. So, uh, once again, good morning, First Free. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Jordan Cron. I am the student ministries pastor here at First Free. Uh, just this last week, jo- Pastor Josh got to unpack for us Romans chapter 1, uh, verses 18 to 32. And, and this last week, we got to look at how Gentiles, uh, apart from Jesus, without Jesus as their Savior, are, are, are ultimately condemned. They're ultimately under God's wrath. And this week, that last week and this week, so Gentiles was last week, and Paul's going to turn his focus to Jews this week. For me, it feels a little bit like when siblings get in trouble. And some of us have lived this because we have siblings. Uh, and some of us as parents have gotten to witness this in the, the children that we have. But, but you, you know, you know what this is like. You've got, uh, one child who you're giving that stern talking to. You're, you're wagging the finger. You're dropping the grounding. You know, that there's, there's a lot of stern conversation with that one kid. And then you've got the other kid in the corner who's like, la, 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 la. <laughs> you know, like they're smiling and they're excited. Like, go get them. Go get them, mom and dad. Like they're, you know, they're really all about it. And, and then the parent, parent turns to the one who's smiling and excited and, and is like, you're next, you know, you know, one of those, well, well this morning, this morning, that, that he, last week, Paul was addressing the Gentiles this week, the, the Jewish people, they're next. Um, or, or we might think of this in terms of the parable of the prodigal son. Uh, this last week, we were looking at the, the son who was far off, the, the son who engaged in wild and reckless living, the, the son that knew that he didn't deserve relationship with the father. And this week then shifts in talking to the Jewish people to address the son who is near, the son who's close, the son who follows the rules. But this son still has a broken relationship with father. So last week, Paul had hard things to say about the Gentiles. So today, Paul is going to address the Jews. So if you've got your Bibles, would you turn to me, uh, turn with me to Romans chapter 2. We're going to be on page 940 in that pew Bible that's right in front of you. So if you want to grab the pew Bible, 940. Uh, otherwise, flip open your Bible in Romans chapter 2. And, and to begin our time, uh, let, me, let me ask you this question. Uh, for many of us, we seek to be daily Bible readers. Well, whatever that looks like for you, whether it's early in the morning, midday, at night, we seek to be people that, that read the Word of God. We want to value the Word of God. Like we say, at first free, the, the Word does the work. Um, but the Bible can be confusing at times. How do we make sense of, of, of the promises and the people and the focuses? Uh, and for some of us, I'm sure we've asked this question at times. Well, what should we think of the Jewish people? Did the Jews actually need Jesus? Are they in need of him as their savior? And I remember as a question, this question in my mind, even as a child trying to figure out the Bible and how it's put together, uh, my, my Sunday school teachers uh, had a little competition for our Sunday school class, and, and it was who could read the Bible through first. And we had this chart with, with kids' names and 66 little sections by it, and, and you could stick up stickers for every book of the Bible that you had read because they were wanting to encourage us to be daily readers of the Bible. Um, and there was this kid um, who was in my class, Ben. Ben. Ben was really good at reading the Bible. Like he was putting up all the stickers on the chart. Um, he was he was the goat of Bible reading. I'm talking talking LeBron James goat, you know, uh, Tiger Woods goat. He was he was the goat of our Sunday school class, and, and I I wanted to take that place. I wanted to catch up to Ben. I wanted to show that I could read the Bible too, just like just like Ben. And so I gave it my best effort. I put up sticker after sticker after sticker. Truth be told, I 
to do a lot of skimming uh, of the Bible. But but I was still trying to make sense of the Bible. How was it put together? Ultimately, I mean, if you went to the end of the story, Ben triumphed. He he prevailed. Um, he remained the goat, um, and I was I was the Scotty Pippen, I guess. Um, but. But I was trying to make sense of the Bible even as a child. How should we make sense of, of how this Bible is put together? And as you see this, this incredible focus on the Jewish people, there's kind of this question, what, what should we think of the Jewish people? Do Jews need Jesus? And our Bible overwhelmingly, if you read our Bible, it centers on the Jewish people. Just think about this. God makes overwhelming promises to the Jewish people, promises of land, of blessing, of this blessing to the whole world through them, of God's presence with them. Thinking about even the main characters of the Bible. You've got the patriarchs. I mean, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're, they're all Jewish. Or, or, or thinking about uh, some of the key leaders of the Bible. You've got King David, you've got Moses. They're Jewish. Or you've got our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, born to a Jewish mom, to, to Jewish parents. Um, think about the key leaders of the early church, Paul, James, John, all, all Jewish people. Um, if you read your Bible, kind of going through and go like, how many of these books are actually written by those who would come from Jewish heritage? It was it's 64, about 64 out of 66 books of the Bible. About that is written by Jewish people. So what should we think about the Jewish people? Do, do Jews need Jesus? And there would have been some of this same tension that, that was felt in Rome, um, thinking about, you know, even some of its establishment. So um, Jesus died for sins, rose from the dead, and he's sending out his apostles to, to plant churches and, and sent out his people. The, the Christians are a sent people to, to start churches all throughout the world. And one of those churches that Jewish Christians would have started what was this church right here in Rome. And some of the tension kind of began in 49 A.D., a little bit of historical background. But in 49 A.D., uh, something happened so that in Rome, so that all Jews were, were forced to leave Rome, just all Jews, including Jewish Christians that were forced to leave Rome. And, and so what remained for the Roman church was, was Gentile Christians, Gentiles who, who heard the gospel and, and repented of sins and trusts in Jesus, Gentiles who didn't maintain the same dietary or customary laws. They weren't living like the Jewish people, but they became a part of this people, became a part of this church. And the tension would have then really ratcheted up as, as Jews returned, returned to this church that was dominated by Gentiles, predominantly led by Gentiles because there had been a vacuum of Jewish Christian leadership. And so as Jewish Christians return, as Gentile Christians are the dominating leaders of this church, there's this question that the church in Rome would have been asking. What do we think about the Jewish people? How should we understand the Jews? And Paul writes in Romans chapter 2 to help us to understand. And so here's our big idea for today. We're going to put it on the screen. But our big idea is this, that apart from Jesus, Jewish people are under God's just condemnation and judgment. Looked at Gentiles this last week, how Gentiles were under God's just condemnation. This week we're switching to Jews. Apart from Jesus, Jewish people are under God's just condemnation and judgment. And, and as we're going to be tracking through Romans chapter 2, 1 to 3, 8, um, here's kind of the structure that you'll want to kind of keep in your mind as we're following along. Um, but Paul's going to give us two challenges for the Jewish people, two challenges for Jews, and then he's going to uh, conclude with a critical truth. So two challenges Critical truth. And we're going to read in Romans. We're going to read just a couple of sections of our assigned text. Um, and so I hope you've got your Bibles with you and your Bibles are open. But we're going to start in Romans 2.1. And so would you stand with me if you are able 
for the reading of God's word. Romans 2, verse 1. And here's what we're going to read, so you kind of know where we're skipping towards. We'll read the first five verses, Romans 2, 1 to 5, um, and, then the, and then we're going to skip down to Romans 2, 17 to 24. So 2, 17 will be the next one where you want to j- jump down to with me. But we're going to start in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. And there Paul says this. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judge of God, sorry, the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up for yourself, sorry, storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We'll skip down to 217. It says this, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve of what is excellent because you're instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Okay, so this text that's primarily addressing the Jewish people, it's easy for us to read this, for for me to hear the setup for this. And it's easy for us to think, is this passage, is it really for me? Because it's primarily not addressing me. Am I right? I mean, it could could feel a little bit like I'm getting ready to unpack for you particle physics or I'm about to teach you Klingon from Star Trek for any of my Trekkies out there. Um, It feels for the vast majority of us a little bit worthless at times. But but this text that's primarily written to Jews has some massive implication for us in the church. It, It speaks not only to the Jewish people, but it also speaks to us. So let me encourage you as we're walking through this text to to lean in because there is something in this text for you as well. So so Paul's first challenge to the Jewish people is this. Jews, you practice what you condemn in verses 1 to 5. Jews, you practice what you condemn. So so as we're reading this text and we just read 2, 1 to 5, who is it that Paul is addressing in this text? In 2, 1, it begins with this. It says, therefore, you have no excuse. And the question for us, because it just starts off with you, this indescript person, is who is this you? Well, well, there's a couple of things that are helpful for us in knowing the you that Paul is addressing here in this text. The first thing to know about this you is that this is just a singular you. We don't get this inflection typically when we have English. Unless if you're from the deep south, um, you know, you're thinking about the plural you that usually you see in the Bible. Usually if you see a you, it's the plural you. And if you're in Texas, there's the there's the y'all, you know, the, the howdy y'all. 
Um, that's typically, that y'all is what you see in a text. But, but here, instead of a plural you, it's a singular, singular you. So there's just one person that Paul is addressing. And it's important for us to know this is this is a pretend person that Paul is addressing or, or a, a hypothetical dialogue. So, so he's not talking to a real person. He's t- talking to this hypothetical person in, in the form of what's called a, a diatribe. Um, but, but he's talking to this person trying to make a, a broader point for all people. So, so while it's a pretend argument, it, it's a broader principle that it's going to apply to more than just this individual person. The second thing to know about this you that he's addressing is that he's dialoguing with a hypothetical Jewish person. And we just read it in 2.17. Uh, it's there when it says, but if you, singular, that's the, the singular you, call yourself a Jew. So Paul here is addressing this hypothetical, hypothetical person having a diatribe argument trying to make a broader point. So then what's Paul's challenge to the Jews? What's he hope to get done in speaking to the Jewish people? Also in two one, Paul writes this for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So thinking about the text for this this last week and the number of sins that were laid out before the Gentiles, they were uh, envying and murdering and there was strife and deceit and maliciousness and there was gossip and slanders and haters of God and insolent. There was a line of descriptions that Paul was giving about the Gentiles and Paul here is saying that, that, that you Jews are condemning the Gentiles and you're judging the Gentiles, but you're committing the exact same things. He's letting them know you're, you're living hypocritically and condemning them. You, you are really condemning yourself because you are doing what they practice too. But but why why are they condemned for this? What's it matter about them being hypocritical? Well, there's two supporting points to this main challenge. Uh, the first supporting point we're going to look at is this, that all are going to be judged by our works, all being Jew and Gentile. So let's unpack a little bit Paul's supporting point. It starts in 2.7, and it says this, or one of the verses I want to read for you is in 2.7. It says this, To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. Now, this is a little bit confusing as we read it. If you're patient and well-doing, if you seek glory for glory and honor and immortality, you get eternal life. There seems to be a strong emphasis on works. Like, like it almost feels like good people go to heaven. Good people get eternal life, which is a little confusing. So read, read 2.8 too. It continues the confusing part. 2.8 it says this, but for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, so it's about obedience, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So good people go to heaven, bad people get wrath and fury, bad people go to hell. Why does Paul say this? Doesn't Paul know that salvation isn't about what you do? Hasn't anybody told Paul salvation is really about what Jesus Christ has done? I mean, I'm thinking, in my mind, it's like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, Paul, you know, uh, salvation is not a result of works. Uh, but we're not going to get into this right now. But Paul here in setting this up, he's trying to set up really the the logic of the letter. So so there's going to be more where it's kind of pushing us forward in the argument. But but he's setting up how none of us are good. Ultimately, we're all self-seeking. We don't obey truth. 
None of us are actually passing the good person test to get to go to heaven. Paul wants us to know that that we're all going to be judged by our works and every one of us falls short. Not not just Jews, but Jews and Gentiles. Or or if you've ever seen that silly Oprah clip, it feels a little bit like this, you know, where she's going, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. Well, it seems like Paul's also going, hey, you're going to get judged and you're going to get judged and you're going to get judged. We're all going to get judged is what Paul is setting up here. In 2, 9 and 10, he says twice, that it's for the Jew first and also for the Greeks. So he repeats it twice. It's both Jews and Gentiles. None of us get to escape God's judgment. How can we be saved? How if none of us are good? How if none of us pass this good person's test? Well, once again, Paul is foreshadowing to another chapter. Ultimately, we need the perfect work of Christ credited to our account. We need his perfect works, his perfect obedience declared to be ours through faith in the gospel. So, so, but Paul's point here, we're all going to be judged by our works. The question is, uh, don't Jews have some sort of advantage? I, I mean, they did receive the whole Old Testament. Yes, they did receive the whole Old Testament, but Paul has a, a supporting point number two. That, that is that all will be judged by the same law. In this section, Paul wants us to see, yes, Jews do have the law, but but ultimately all of us, Jews and Gentiles, we are going to be judged by the same law. So so in 2.12, Jews are described as being under the law. And this points us towards what, what theologians refer to as special revelation. If you're taking notes, you can write that word down. It's a helpful word theologically, special revelation. But, but God, he specially revealed himself to the Jewish people. God specially revealed himself through the law, through the prophets. He gave them Genesis through Malachi. Jews are under the law. They do have the law. But but there is, in a sense, no advantage, as they will be judged by this same law. Also, not only Jews are going to be judged by the law, but but in 2.15, we see that Gentiles are going to be judged by the law as well. It says there in 2.15 that, that Gentiles have the law written on their hearts. Now, uh, Jews received what's called special revelation. Gentiles received what's called general revelation. God has generally revealed himself to all. God's law is written on our hearts. So, so what that means is that even without having a Bible, our hearts, Gentiles' hearts, know that we have broken the law. Without having scripture, our consciences are, are guilty and tell us that we have turned from God. So to to summarize Paul's challenge to Jews, Jews are doing what they condemn others for. They will be judged by the works, just like all are judged by the works. And they will be judged by the law, just like Gentiles are judged by the law. Let me illustrate what's happening here. A little bit of an illustration break as we're walking through this complicated text. But but parents, um, do you ever break your own rules? Have you ever been guilty of saying something to your kids and then... uh, disobeying the very same thing that you had said to them. Just think with me. For example, stop yelling. I think you just yelled by doing that, you know, or, or, or one of mine that I, I think I remember this like a lot as a kid where it's like no dessert before dinner. You're going to ruin your dinner. And then like in my, in the corner, there's like, you know, an adult that's like eating the, the dessert and, and, it's, and then they say something like, well, I write the rules so I can break them. So it's like, 
just broke your own rule. Come on. Or, or, uh, or they tell you about how important sleep is and, uh, mom and dad maybe stay up late on their phone, uh, looking at that, that the wee hours into the night. Um, do you ever break your own rules? What will the Jews have broken their own rules, but they haven't just broken any old rules. They've broken God's law. And just like the Gentiles, they deserve God's judgment. Here, Paul is helping us to understand the gospel. And mainly, he's spending time unpacking one facet of the gospel. At first free, we like to explain the gospel in terms of God, man, Christ response. God being loving and just. Man being made in God's image, but having sinned and broken relationship with God. Christ dying for our sins, rising from the dead. And how we got to respond by faith to receive what Christ has done. God, man, Christ response. Well, in this passage, Paul is primarily pressing into the man facet of the gospel. But we see that, that all men, because of our sin, are separated in relationship to God. All men are in need of Christ. Last week, we saw how Gentiles were under God's condemnation. And this week, Paul drives home that Jews, too, are under God's condemnation because of their sin. So what's this mean for us? It's important for us to remember this, that that Jews are in need of the gospel. And so for those that are Jewish people, we must be faithful to share the gospel with them. For those that are friends, those that are family, those that are co-workers, those that are loved ones, just like us apart from Christ, Jewish people apart from Christ, that they are separated from God. They are in need of Christ and what he has done. And so we must ask critical questions. What, what is it that you believe about God? Who do you think that God is? Do you know what the gospel is? Has anybody ever shared, shared the gospel with you? Or who do you say that Jesus is? What do you think about Jesus? Or what's keeping you from believing that he is Messiah? We must be faithful to share the gospel with those that are Jewish people. So Paul's first challenge for Jews is that they have no excuse from judgment. They practice what they condemn. Paul's second challenge for Jews comes in the form of a question. It's this. Jews, do you keep the law? And here Paul wants to show their hypocrisy, and he does so with a series of questions. Paul wants to help them see their sin and their need. And in 2.21, we see a series of questions being asked. Um, That if they teach others, do they not teach themselves? If they preach against stealing, do they steal? If they... Say, do not commit adultery, do they do that too? Or or if they abhor idols, do they rob temples? We see Paul outlining three of the Ten Commandments in this passage. And Jewish, the Jewish audience to this text would have known the rest. Do, Do they misuse the name of God? Do they remember the Sabbath? Do they honor their father and mother? Do they lie? Do they covet? Paul is ultimately trying to help drive them to the point in 2.23. It says this, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. The Jewish people, they're lawbreakers. They have trespassed the law, and they are in need of Jesus. Paul says that it was in the past that that Gentiles mocked God, and in his quote that he gives in this section, and now he's saying that that Jews mock God, and they do this by breaking the law. In 2.24, it says that the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. And this is a quote from Isaiah 52.5. And really, he's taking this quote in Isaiah 52.5, and he's kind of turning it on its head. He's he's flipping it. He's kind of doing Isaiah 52.5 remix, if you will. In the original context, it was Gentiles who blasphemed God's name. They were harming the Jews. 
Gentiles were those who mocked God's name. But, but now in flipping it on his head, he's saying that it's Jews who mock God's name. And he's wanting to add two more supporting points to this challenge. That the first supporting point is this, that, that law keeping is greater than circumcision in 225 to 27. Law keeping is greater than circumcision. So what, why is law keeping greater, greater than circumcision? Well, Paul says this, um, that, that law keeping is what makes you and law keeping is what breaks you. That, that for law keeping, it's do it all or die. That it's where the hard line is. So because it's do or die with the law, law keeping is greater than circumcision. And he says it's do or die. It's all or nothing for both Jews and Gentiles. Starting with the Jews in 225, he says this, that, that circumcision indeed is a value, but it's a value if you obey the law. That is the whole law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, so he's saying, yes, circumcision is valuable, but you got to keep the whole law to make it valuable. Or, or law keeping is make or break for the Gentiles. 226 says this. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So, so a Gentile hypothetically could, could keep the whole law, and because of that, he's regarded as one of God's people. But once again, he has to keep the whole law. Now, this begs the question. It's leading to where Paul's going. Once again, can anyone actually keep the law, the whole law? And Paul will get into this later, that, that none of us can, all fall short, all have sin. What's the point? We ultimately need more than the law. Okay, so what is it that we need that's more than the law? And our second supporting point is this. A changed heart is greatest of all. 228 and 29, a changed heart is greatest of all. Paul says that it's true Judaism as an inward matter. That it's not about being circumcised. It's not about what's physical. It's not about what is on the outside. It is about the heart. 229 says this, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart. Jews must have a changed heart. They must have a new heart. How does this come? Well, the text tells us it's through the spirit. Well, how do we receive the spirit? It's ultimately only through faith in Jesus that we must receive a new heart and it's by trusting Christ. So, so Paul is challenging them with a question. Do you keep the law? He says that law keeping matters more than circumcision, but, but, but a changed heart matters most of all. What's the problem? What's the issue here? Jews were looking to the wrong thing to save them. They think their Jewishness will save them, but it won't. Well, let's illustrate again here. Um, have you ever seen someone doing something incredibly dangerous with minimal protective gear? And, and you're thinking... You, you need something more than that. You need something more than that. One for me that comes to mind, um, I mean, you're driving along the highway and, you know, you're obeying the speed limit like a good driver. And, and then some some kid on a motorcycle zooms past you, you know, they, they've got a helmet on, but but they've got a, a T-shirt on and a shorts on and they're going 25 miles over the speed limit. And, you know, wind is blowing and it, like crazy and there's busy traffic. And you as a driver are thinking, bud, if that's all you're trusting in to keep you safe, you need a little bit more than that. I mean, you need to, to learn how to drive safe, first of all. Second of all, get four wheels. Get off the motorcycle because those things are dangerous. Sorry for your motor, motorcycle drivers out there. They're cool. 
Um, but, but you need four wheels. You need safe driving lessons. Or if you're going to stick with a motorcycle, you got to have more than that. You need a, a riding jacket. You need jeans. You need more than that to keep you safe. That is not enough. Well, when it comes to Jewish salvation, tr- trusting in their Jewishness, trusting in their circumcision, what they were trusting in could never be enough. It was not enough. They needed something more. No, no, in fact, they needed someone more. They needed Jesus to save them from their sins. And so what's this mean for us? That what Jews trusted in to save them could never be enough. What's the relevance for us? Some of us, we trust in the wrong thing to save us too. If I, if I could ask you, you know, what is it that, that gets you to go to heaven? How is it that, that you think that you could go to heaven? For, for a number of us, we might ask we might say things overtly like, man, I'm a, I'm a churchgoer. Um, I, I'm a good person. I generally follow the commandments. I, I don't lie on my taxes. I don't cheat on my wife. Uh, I'm, I'm not a serial killer, which is like, I mean, I don't know why people are bragging about that at the end of the day. It's like, you're not a serial killer. Wow. Shocking. Um, but, but some of us, we might not say that overtly, but, but pride in our hearts likely wells up from following the rules and doing things that are righteous in God's law. For many of us, it might not be so overt, but it might be, in fact, covert in what we are trusting in for our identity and our our salvation. But what we can do is never enough. Just like the Jews, we are hypocritical sinners. We're lawbreakers. We are not good. And it's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done. We must receive a new heart that is given to us through faith in Christ. So Paul has given two challenges to Jews. Now Paul is going to end with a critical truth. That'll be our final part for today. And Paul's critical truth is this, that if Jews are unfaithful or unrighteous, God is faithful and God is righteous. And Paul's going to address this truth by addressing two objections to God's faithfulness. There's going to be two questions that Paul is going to address. And in showing this critical truth, the first objection Paul addresses is this. If Jews are unfaithful, so so if Jews are unfaithful, is God unfaithful or is God faithful? As Paul puts it in Romans 3.3, does their, that is Jews, does their faithlessness nullify the faithlessness of God? So Jews aren't faithful. Does this mean that God isn't faithful? Or the second objection Paul then addresses is this. He, he, he addresses this question. If our sin shows God's perfection, should God still judge us? Or, or as Romans 3, 5 puts it, it says, if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. The question being, doesn't our sin show how great God is? I mean, I'm a big sinner, so it shows and puts on display how holy God is. So, so then why then does God still judge us if I show how righteous and great God is? And Paul makes his case. He's going to quote from King David. Paul quotes from this fellow Jew in Romans 3, 4, when it says this, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Now, this is a quote from Psalm 51. Uh, this is alluding to uh, what, what David directly said there. And, and this uh, quote in Psalm 51, it's following when King David 
committed adultery with Bathsheba. It follows David's murder of Uriah. And in this instance, in Psalm 51, David was caught red-handed. He's guilty, and because he is guilty, God is punishing David for his sin. And what David says here about God, he admits this about God, that God in punishing him is just. God is right to punish him. God in punishing him is faithful. It is not God who is in the wrong. God does what is right. What does this mean for us? That God in punishing sin does what is right. It's important for us to remember that many we love are unfaithful to this faithful God. Many we love are going to face God's punishment for their sins because they have not trusted in Jesus as their Savior. Parents, children, aunts, uncles, brothers, sisters, friends, many that we love, many that we care deeply for, many who have not placed their hope in Christ. And it feels impossible for us to admit that apart from Jesus Christ, our loved ones will face God's righteous judgment. For, for me personally, considering this makes me think back to many of those goofy pictures that I took in college. I mean, it seems like a, a hard right turn, but I'll get to why I'm talking about this. Um, you know, th- those questions that, you know, when you, you talk to your kids, they're like, why did you have so much hair? in college, you know, why were you so skinny? Why were you, why did you not have as many wrinkles? And it's like, you gave it to me, kid. It's your fault. Um, but, but I think back to those, you know, college Jordan with thicker hair and a faster metabolism and lots of free time and less wrinkles. And I I see pictures of, of me with friends, people that I spent time with people that I, I loved and had many good memories with, friends without faith in Christ, friends since college who have died. For me personally, it makes me wrestle with this question too. Is God faithful to judge their sin? Is God righteous to judge their sin? And we may not understand But God's word tells us he is faithful in judgment. He is righteous in judgment. In conclusion, it's true that apart from Jesus, Jews and Gentiles are under God's just condemnation and punishment. Apart from Jesus, we deserve God's judgment. But Jesus was faithful. He was faithful to keep the law. He was sinless. He never trespassed God's boundaries. He was no hypocrite. He knew no sin. He was not selfish or cruel or abusive or proud. Jesus was faithful to keep the law. And there's this beautiful reality for you and I who who trust in Jesus as our Savior. It's called the doctrine of imputation. I would write that down. It's a big word. But but what's cool about this doctrine is Jesus' faithfulness to the law, his 
full obedience to the law. For when you trust in him, it, it, it is imputed to you. Or, or it is counted it is yours. It is considered yours by God. So that when God sees us, he does not see lawbreakers. God sees Jesus' perfect obedience to the law and the believer. But have you trusted Jesus? Has his righteousness been counted as yours? Or if you have trusted in Jesus, are you living your life by faith in what Christ has done? Or are you looking to anything else to earn God's love and blessing? Would you join me in prayer? God, we thank you for the gift of righteousness. We thank you that for this free gift that is undeserved by us. God, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves, help us to see our sin, help us to see our rebellion, help us to see that we deserve your judgment because of our sin. And Lord God, help us to find refuge in the righteousness of Christ. Help us to know that it comes not from what is external, we are not counted as righteous through following the law or doing good things or whatever we could do. We are righteous because your son was righteous for us. Would you train our hearts to, to live by faith in this reality? And we praise you for your kindness to us. We thank you from the depth of our hearts and souls. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.